The New Testament is often challenged by many, many today who are skeptical or even apathetic about Christianity in general. You know, they go and they say, well, you know, don't you realize that, you know, it's kind of like the telephone uh, book game or the telephone game where you have 10 people that are all lined up um, and the first person gets a message and they pass it down and they go and they say it's been corrupted. But with over 5,800 manuscripts today in the original Greek and thousands of other ancient translations like Syriac, Coptic, and Latin, we have what I think is what they wrote back then. In fact, with over a million quotations from the early church fathers that allow us to reconstruct the original New Testament with some 99% certainty, anything uh, that we, we, we can say with regards to the New Testament is the fact that it is historically reliable. So what I want to do today is I want to deal with this whole concept of the New Testament reliability in the short moments that we do have. My name is Rob Lundberg, and you're listening to the Let's Get Real podcast. And you are listening to the Let's Get Real podcast. Again, uh, thank you for listening. You know, people often challenge the New Testament. You know, we've talked about the existence of God and, and the fact that truth exists. And we, last week we did a, 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 a pretty solid case for miracles. And of course, you know, with these podcasts and everything that we've been doing, these are just basically the tip of the tip of the iceberg. You can actually go to my uh, website and go to the resources, and you can actually get the PDFs of a lot of the presentations that you're listening to here uh, in a little bit more detail. So I would invite you to do that. But what we're going to do is we're going to address the New Testament today. You know, the fact that miracles recorded in the Bible, specifically the resurrection of Jesus, will distinguish between the remaining worldviews of, say, of the monotheistic religions. You know, we talked about the monotheistic religions being set apart from the Eastern religions of Buddhism and, and Hinduism. When we look at Christianity versus Judaism and Islam, we can see that the, the distinction is drawn, or the line that is drawn on the sand is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the, what we use as a reference to distinguish between the remaining monotheistic religions or any other theistic belief system for that matter. But I want you to know that you and I can trust what the Bible says. For our purposes, we're going to just focus on the New Testament, and, and here's why. It's because Jesus, whom the New Testament shows as God, says that the Old Testament is the Word of God. You know, Jesus quoted the Old Testament, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. So while there is independent evidence for the reliability of the Old Testament, say like the Dead Sea Scrolls and archaeology, but 
while there is independent evidence for the reliability of the Old Testament, by confirming the New Testament, we get the Old Testament as well. When we look at the New Testament, we get the Old Testament as well. And that's because Jesus went and quoted. The, the gospel writers referred to it in the prophecies. And the Apostle Paul in his writings, and Peter in his writings, and even uh, Jude, for that matter, talking about the rebellion of Korah in his letter. You know, so we can see the historical reliability of, of both the Old Testament and the New Testament in that. Now, there are a couple questions here that need to be presented. And that is, first, do we have an accurate copy of the original writings? And secondly, did the New Testament writers actually tell the truth? Now, accurate copies of fairy tales, you know, will do little to help us in our search for truth. So what we want to do is we want to use those two questions to establish the truth of the uh, New Testament documents. Now, with regards to this, you know that we actually can deal with this from a few different angles that I want to try and, and cover as well. You know, when you talk about fragments that have been dug up, you know, archaeology, okay, ranging from fragments with a few verses to pages, even to whole books and collections of books, the manuscript evidence for the text of the New Testament far outweighs any other literary work. I referenced in the beginning of our show today that there are over 5,800 New Testament manuscripts in the original Greek, most of which date from A.D. 1000 and later, though many date well before that period of time, at least six from the second century A.D. and possibly a fragment of Mark even from the first century. Now, our earliest copy of any portion of the New Testament is actually around 25 to 40 years removed from the original. That's known as P52, which is a copy uh, of a couple verses on both sides of John chapter 18. It was found, it's called the John Ryland's papyri. Now, when you take the fact that you have 25 to 40 years removed from the original, and you compare and contrast it, say, like the closest work of Homer's Iliad, you know, again, we have over 5,800 manuscripts in the New Testament, with the New Testament, but Homer's Iliad only has about 1,757 manuscripts. Our earliest copy of, of Homer's Iliad is roughly about 400 years removed from the original. Now, there is support for other ancient documents, and, and of course, the, the time and the number of manuscripts, it drops significantly from, from Homer's Iliad. When you add in the tens of thousands of early manuscript translations of the New Testament, and over a million quotations from the early church fathers ranging from the first century A.D. to the Middle Ages, 
the text of the New Testament is incredibly well attested. In fact, while there are over 200,000 places where these New Testament manuscripts differ amongst themselves, only 1% of those differences, which affect about 0.1% of the New Testament text, have any significant bearing on the meaning of the verse in question. Most importantly, not a single one of those differences affects or touches a single Christian doctrine. Now, let me explain what I mean here. You know, there's a lot of challenges today about the New Testament having errors as a result of new scholarship from my friend Mike Lacona. And though Mike is a friend of mine, he and I differ distinctively on his approach. And I haven't voiced this to him. I've been kind of uh, underground on this. But I'm, I'm coming out on this because I do not believe, first and foremost, in mark and priority of the New Testament. Because that is based on redaction criticism, based out of, uh, out of the Tübingen School of Germany. And it is based on German liberalism, as far as believing of this, this document called Q. And I might be chasing a rabbit here that I, that I might have to kill and eat, but I'm willing to do that in this show for, for use the amount of time that I'm given. So when you take a historiographical approach and taking the writers as kind of like comparing them to a woman and, a, uh, and her husband, where the woman gets every detail, uh, every, you know, who, what, where, when, how, why, and all this, what color, and of course the guides just want the details. You can't treat the gospel writers as male and female, like where one sounds like his one's wife. Each of these writers had a certain audience that they were writing to. Matthew to the Jews, Mark to the Romans, Luke to the Greeks, and John's gospel was basically a presentation to the whole world of the deity of Jesus Christ. It was a global, I guess you could uh, approach it from that point in time in, in first century history. It isn't a matter of sounding like a particular gender and getting certain details right. So I, that's why I reject a lot of that. Not only that, um, I, I take literal what um, Matthew says about the dead uh, at the time of the crucifixion, at the time of the resurrection of Jesus, though the dead that were already dead rose from the dead and went into the city and preached the gospel. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 27. I believe that's not, I don't believe that's apocalyptic literature because you can't switch genres where you have a historical narrative paragraph, another historical paragraph, and all of a sudden Matthew decides to go and put an apocalyptic paragraph, and then, then after that paragraph, uh, another historical narrative? No, can't happen that way. So, number one, I would say that there are no errors in the New Testament 
I would call them variances. But again, even if there's 200,000 or even 400,000, as Dan Wallace says, not a single one of them touch a single doctrine of the Christian faith. And a variant is not, and I repeat, a variant is not an error. Okay? I'll say that again. A variant is not an error. So, again, while there are over 200,000 places, you know, even up to 400,000, just let us be reminded that not a single doctrine is touched. So the next question that I have to bring in here is, do these well-attested documents tell the truth? And, and folks, with what I share with you just moments ago, I do believe that they do, and we have good reason to believe that they do. First, we have early testimony and it is possible that the New Testament was completed prior, or at least the Gospels, and even the entire New Testament. I'm an early guy, so I would lean toward this, before A.D. 70. Secondly, we also have eyewitness testimony that the New Testament authors claimed either to be eyewitnesses or to have, been in, or to have interviewed the eyewitnesses, like in the case of Luke, in his prologue that he goes and he tells us that people in Herod's, about Herod's people in court so that he got everything correctly as he was writing to Theophilus. There's a third reason that we have, and that is embarrassing testimony, such as the chief characters uh, portrayed in a negative light, making such a fabrication would be uh, unlikely. And let me give you some reasons why this is the case. Let me give you 10 why I believe these writers told the truth. First, the New Testament writers did include embarrassing details about themselves, such as times when they were slow to understand, uh, understand uh, what Jesus was saying that they were afraid and doubtful and even uncaring. You know, when you're uncaring and you're in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus asks you to watch and pray and you fall asleep, that's pretty embarrassing. It's pretty embarrassing when the Apostle Peter goes and, and denies Jesus three times. Thank the Lord that God is merciful and gracious that he went and restored him. And he became one of the chief apostles of the early church in the book of Acts. But you know, Secondly, the New Testament writers also included embarrassing details about Jesus, such as his family thinking that he was crazy, uh, about people deserting him, people calling him demon-possessed and even being crucified. The New Testament writers also included difficult sayings from Jesus, such as the Beatitudes. Read the Beatitudes. In fact, I recommend if you're a psychologist, read the Beatitudes and work your methodology from them. I think you'll have a better result instead of taking Freud um, or any of the other uh, psychologists that are out there. Thirdly, uh, fourthly, excuse me, the New Testament writers carefully distinguished their words from Jesus' words. Fifth, the resurrection details were not ideal for credibility. In fact, you have an embarrassing, testi uh, embarrassing uh, testimony in this in the fact that being a patriarchal society back in first century Jerusalem, it was women 
who were the first eyewitnesses. And in that culture, women were not even considered good witnesses in a court of law. It took two women in a Jewish court of law to equal one man's testimony. In an Islamic culture, it's three women, and then maybe, maybe not. Number six, the New Testament writers included more than 30 historically confirmed people in their writings. And also, number seven, the New Testament writers included divergent details which complemented one another. So they might be divergent, but folks, they're not an error. That's why you can trust the New Testament, because the writers had their own personalities. And their own personalities were involved. They were moved by the Holy Spirit as God gave them utterance, as Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, 16-21 tells us. Number eight, the New Testament writers challenged people to look at the facts. Number nine, the New Testament writers described the miracles in such a succinct manner that they were determined, uh, they were deemed unembellished. You can't embellish something that you eyewitness. And, and if you look at the, the accounts of the gospel writers that record the same miracle, you get their perspective, and it's coherent and consistent with the others, with each other. Not an error at all. And you can find out more on that one by reading John chapter 20, verse 31. Number 10. The New Testament writers abandoned their long-held practices such as animal sacrifice, circumcision, and the Sabbath. We can talk about that one a little bit later. But basically, folks, we have eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony about Jesus. The classical scholar and historian Colin Hemmer identified 84 facts in the New Testament uh, in the book of Acts from 13 to 28 that have confirmed or given confirmation from the fields of history and archaeology and geology and sociology. The book of Luke also records 35 miracles. And Craig Blomberg confirms 59 details in the book of John through history, archaeology, and even non-Christian writings. The New Testament is a collection of writings from independent eyewitnesses, it's clear. Each major author includes early and unique material. Their accounts actually describe the same, the same events with a divergence of details as naturally happens with independent eyewitness accounts. And there are six independent sources for the resurrection. We'll talk about the resurrection at another time. But do these New Testament documents tell the truth? I believe they do. And we get to the last of the four, or five, as I started. First, we have early New Testament. We have embarrassing testimony. And we have embarrassing testimonies about the chief characters, which we just talked about, and I gave you those top ten. But let's go back to the fourth one. We have excruciating testimony. Folks, Jesus' disciples were willing to die for what they knew to be a fact, whether it was true or false. You can look in Google the history 
of what happened to the disciples. And when I put this up, I may provide you a link for that. But folks, what we have is credible eyewitness testimony. Again, a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses recording for us the supernatural events that are in direct fulfillment to specific prophecies. And these writers claim that their writings were divine rather than human in origin. And folks, the New Testament writers are included in that. So what we have is internal but eyewitness testimony. They are the direct eyewitnesses and we get the circumstantial evidence of the New Testament. There's one more thing I want to share with you on this though that's rather fascinating and that is this. We also have extra-biblical testimony. There are at least 45 known ancient sources, including 17 non-Christian sources, which corroborate key portions of the New Testament. Let me give you some of those before we wrap our show up today. First off, I want you to note that 25 of the New Testament books were quoted by Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp between A.D. 95 and 110. Most of the 25 books quoted were written before A.D. 70, and otherwise they would have been mentioned something like a very big historical event in Jewish history. Gee, I wonder what that could be. Could it be the invasion of Rome into Jerusalem in A.D. 70? And they raised R-A-Z-E-D the temple in Jerusalem and took all the gold off the bricks. Why do you think the Jews are trying to build a temple now? And by the way, if they start building it, you better get excited because Jesus is coming back soon. But let me tell you something. When you take into consideration that the gospel writers do not include that historical event, wouldn't that be significant? Absolutely. It would be really significant. Matthew, a Jew, going and recording. No, you know what Matthew does? Matthew records Jesus' prophecy of that event happening. So Matthew was actually written before A.D. 70, and I put him right around 45 A.D. I put Mark around 50-51. I put Luke around just before 60 A.D., the gospel, and, and Acts uh, around 60, 61, 62. And, and when, you, when you take, uh, if you look at commentaries today, you find out that a lot of New Testament scholars are writing commentaries, including Gospel of Luke and the, the book of Acts, because it's the same writers, and it's a carryover to what, what Luke wrote in his first gospel. That's an awesome thing. Now, let me, let me move on. Also, many New Testament books were composed before A.D. 62. And, and let, me, let me expand on this. Acts ends with Paul being under arrest 
and Clement and others record Paul's execution during the reign of Nero, which ended in A.D. 68. So where does that put Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians? The pastoral epistles, the general epistles, you know, First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, Titus, Philemon. Where does it put those bo- those letters before Paul's death? And Paul's death was before A.D. sixty-eight. Paul quoted Luke ten seven sometimes between sometime between A.D. sixty-two and sixty-five. You can read that one in 1 Timothy 5.18. And folks, scholars agree that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians between A.D. 55 and 56. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 through 8, contains the earliest, most authenticated testimony of the resurrection. He says, That which was delivered to me and I have received, I pass unto you that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he rose on the third day, according to the scriptures, and he appeared to the twelve, and he appeared to, and he goes on and on and on and on. So my friends, what you and I have is very, very credible. To, to sum it all up with our key point before we close, There are over 5,800 manuscripts in original Greek, thousands of ancient translations, and over a million quotations from the early church fathers that allow you and I to reconstruct the New Testament text with some 99% certainty. Any remaining uncertainty does not affect essential Christian doctrines. And we also have several lines of evidence which I've shared with you today to suggest that the New Testament writers told the truth and were not simply inventing a new religion or a religious leader. Can you imagine if you and I were to sit down at a coffee shop and we would say, let's write a gospel and let's write our own story. Do you think it would sound like the gospels that we read in our New Testaments? I think not. Just gives that some thought. Let's get real about the New Testament. Let's get real about the Gospels. You might be thinking, well, I haven't read my Bible in a while. Where do I start? Do I start in Genesis? No. Don't start there. Go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And let me challenge you on something. When you start with Matthew's Gospel, begin praying, or before you start reading, pray and ask the God who inspired Holy Scripture to show you who Jesus is. If you do that, and you don't get an answer through the first round of the Gospels, read them again and pray the same prayer. He will honor your prayer and know that we're praying for you.
You've been listening to the Let's Get Real podcast with Rob Lundberg. It's been a joy this week. I mentioned to you last week that we were going to be praying that we were not going to get the layoff. I will tell you that we were laid off yesterday, but I have a few job leads. Pray that those leads will open up and that we'll be able to do some really um, uh, really cool work, very similar to what I was doing. Also, I do want to let you know that we have gone and submitted a proposal to the local Bible Institute and Seminary, and they have embraced it for an apologetics concentration. If you have any questions and you live in the Fredericksburg area, if you have a bachelor's degree and you want to take the master's, I think I will be teaching that master's core. I'm not sure, but uh, I, I want to let you know that I have designed it that set up the objectives and, the, and everything about it. And uh, we're going to be discussing that. So I'll keep you apprised on that as well, which is, which is pretty cool. So until next week, you and I, uh, we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. You and I run into people who are created in the image and likeness of God that are very apathetic and don't care about truth or even care about Christianity. And we have to do evangelism differently, and I'll have a show on that maybe a little later. But I do want to let you know that you and I have a purpose, and that is to be disciple-makers and to go out and share the good news. So as you go out this week, go out, give them heaven, and we will be back with you next week, Lord willing. God bless.